This is Thrive Perspectives, an ever-growing discussion about the issues and ideas that shape our lives, with your guide, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Matt uh, Connell, back in the studio, Thrive Perspectives. Man, it's been an interesting journey so far as we've sort of looked at our Christian worldview, and Mm. in last uh, episode we looked at the human predicament Mm. and really focused on the the challenges of, of... to some degree suffering, but how we got there, you know, the fact yeah. that uh, really we've uh, created the, the, well, these are the consequences of our of our decisions, um, mm-hmm. and particularly, obviously, we've gone right back to the beginning in Genesis and, and the decisions made there. Today, we're going to continue a little on that mm-hmm. um, as we kind of look at uh, evil and suffering in the world. Connell, welcome. We, mm-hmm. like, like usual, we had a, a good conversation beforehand, and uh, sometimes I wonder if that's probably better the podcast to put yeah, out on I think we've exhausted the conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, we certainly haven't done that. <laughs> Great to have you with us, Connell. Matt, as always, uh, where do you want to kick off from, Matt? The important thing actually here is that we're placing our worldview in a sort of narrative form. It, yes. it, it has the form of a story and that's important because a, a lot of the big questions that come up are abstract questions mm. that are actually best answered with reference to where we are actually in the story, in the unfolding story. Now, initially, it's a story of of the empowerment of human beings, and that's a very important backdrop for the, the problem of sin, evil, and suffering in the world. Uh, the level of empowerment. Uh, first of all, the, the weight that was put on human choice. We may not think that was such a great idea to give human beings freedom of choice, mm. but the idea behind that is that, you know, primarily, you know, we understand God as a relational God, a God who is looking for uh, a love relationship with his children, with human beings. And in order for us to return that love relationship, it requires this freedom of choice. And so that throughout scripture is the supreme good. You know, it's this, this love relationship, you know, the, the, sort of prime attribute of God celebrated throughout Scripture is the love of God. And uh, and the, the first commandment of all is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this is the summation of the whole law. So so there's no higher good than, than relationship. This is the top uh, this is the top of the ladder in terms of uh, in terms of importance. And so in order to even make that possible uh, we had to, you know, God gave us this freedom of choice. And, and of course, uh, choice comes with, well, dare I say it, a, a sort of risk. Uh, now, it's, you know, it's problematic applying the idea of risk to, to God. God. Uh, but it does come w- with that, you know, we, we had a choice either way. And we talked about that in the last episode. Yeah, and, of did. course, human beings made the choice to reject God, uh, to not trust in God. There was a break in that relationship. And... Because of the level of empowerment, and this, you know, the key, uh, the other key element, as I said, of that was about that was this level of empowerment, you know, that that we were put in charge, that the the world was created, almost like a physical facet of heaven. It's it, it's interesting in the beginning, uh, you get this sense that heaven and earth are very much one and the same. It's, it's almost like the earth is in some sense a physical facet of, of heaven, uh, whatever physical uh, means, uh, and then. After the fall, you get this sense of separation. Suddenly, heaven seems to be some... Well, it's almost spoken in terms of spatial difference, but it's not spatial difference because there's a relational rift. 
there's this sense of separation, uh, relational separation, even though it's not spatial between heaven and earth. And so heaven seems to be somewhere else. You know, mm. we, we pray uh, our Father in heaven. Now, that's significant because that, that separation then is closed right at the end of the Bible. When, we, when you get to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you see a return. Uh, you know, then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so you get the, the reconciliation of heaven and earth. And so you get what is described there as a new heavens and a new earth. Yeah. In other words, a kind of new heavenly earth. It's basically uh, what it was in before the fall. Yeah, b- b- before the fall, but maybe uh, in a greater, you know, in a much greater sense, but essentially, you know, you get this picture of the two being united at, at the beginning, a return to it at the end, and in the middle, you've got this this tension or this separation between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Mm. And of course, you know, heaven is is not somewhere else, like another planet or something. It's it's something like you know another dimension or another. Uh, um, I don't know how you would no. how you would mm. describe it, but because there's also the sense in which it is present in some sense, yeah. mm. uh, and and you know God is you know ever present, but as I said, there's this relational it's, rift. It's not you know when you say it's not spatial separation. It's probably it's almost like it's hidden from us. In, yeah, that's you know, a, yeah, yeah, it's an access. Yeah. We don't have the access that, to it. That yeah, that's God right. Intended, and this is this is actually depicted in at the end of Genesis chapter three, when you know the you know the Garden of Eden, you know whatever that that was, and we're not given much uh, explanation. Alone, the context of uh, the ancient world, as um, the Old Testament scholar John Walton suggests, that that may have been some kind of. Uh, temple garden sort of thing where where this whole drama was sort of enacted and and I mean he sees Adam and Eve as these two archetypal almost priestly uh, sort of figures mm-hmm. I mean be- because because the text is very condensed mm. there is room for conjecture uh, for sort of educated conjecture mm-hmm. and and uh, you know it's it's not it's not wrong to conjecture and, and a lot of those suggestions are interesting we just don't really know for sure mm. It it is. It's nice though to recognise that there is room there for a lot of information that we aren't really told because the yeah. text is the yeah. story is told in a very condensed form. But you do what you get uh, there is this sort of this perfect garden which has this sort of heavenly uh, and certainly in the context of an ancient Near East, you know, that sort of garden uh, temple they were designed to depict a heavenly state of affairs and the interesting thing and certainly in genesis it, it certainly is this sort of heavenly uh, heavenly state but of course adam and eve are then cast out of the garden and the you know the cherubim with the flaming sword is put mm. you know at the entrance of the garden to prevent them from coming in mm. and so they are cast out of that heavenly state um, because of their rebellion against god so that that in a sense states that separation suddenly mm. and 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 it's not like because then you, you don't Eden doesn't ceases to become a place really is you know? yeah. um, of course you you get the rebuilding of the temple and in a sense the temple kind of evokes the idea of the garden even the fact that the big curtain that led into the most holy place um, had uh, had cherubim uh, mm-hmm. sewed into it. And so there was this idea that this is the pathway back into, the, you know, the temple is mm. this pathway back into this you know, heavenly state. But the, the heavenly, when you say heavenly state, I mean, the, the picture that comes to mind is floating around and it's all kind of spiritual and not uh, okay, what we're yeah, used yeah, to. Yeah, right. Yeah, good But point. I think, yeah. 
you know, you listen to people on how much weight you put into like, you know, your near death experiences yeah. and things like that. But those who say they've experienced that at least detachment from the physical world that yeah. we know now talk about being something being more real, more present yeah. than we get to experience now. So when we say heavenly state, I think we're kind of something becoming more unreal, imaginary yeah. in our mind, some sort of floating dreamlike state. But really the heavenly state was probably like a much stronger, more physical, yeah. you know, what's the word? Like it's it's almost like richer, deeper. Yeah, that's right. The every more vibrant than yeah, what that's we've right. got now. So it's well, if you look at Christ, I mean Jesus, I mean he was the first resurrected and that's we right. saw how he interacted on a physical world yeah. after his resurrection we read paul i think it is the cloud of witnesses so i think as you said before we don't have access there but potentially yeah there's all these people potentially beings witnesses watching yeah that's in hebrews yeah yeah us sorry hebrews yeah, yeah. Yes, the the uh, when I refer to a heavenly state, I'm I'm mm. not talking about a non-physical uh, state. It, yeah, the hev- heavenly state is essentially a state of relational harmony uh, in every respect. And uh, actually, that's that's a good segue actually because that it's that that's lost. Uh, it's the relational harmony uh, that is lost. So mm. the harmony uh, between us and God. Uh, that's the first thing. When that's broken, there's a loss of harmony between human beings. Because we, uh, our fundamental identity is children of God, and we're all connected together uh, as something like branches growing out of a vine. To use the illustration that Jesus used, we we are, you know, we're like branches growing out of, out of the vine. But as soon as we disconnect from the vine and snap off, you know, we all become these autonomous sort of units in and of ourselves, mm-hmm. and so disconnected from each other. Now, that's that that's essentially not real because the fact is we are actually connected to it. Like we mm-hmm. are actually, but there's a there's a relational disconnection that happens. In, mm-hmm. in you know because. I mean, the irony is too that we are we are also continually connected with God. I mean, we we continually reliant on God for the sustenance of our very being. Our our the very being and life that we have is actually the very outflow of God. And I know that sounds a little sort of new agey, but I'm I'm thinking you know the the statement the Westminster Confession of Faith makes as God is the fountain of all being. And and utilizing that picture of the the branches on the vine, you know. So so ev- in a sense, for their existence, every person for their existence and life and consciousness are continually dependent on God, and we are intricately connected with each other. We're very much all interconnected, but there's the relational break uh, mm-hmm. that, that's uh, that's happened. So so this is this is signified in Genesis chapter 4 this relational break with the first murder Cain kills Abel and so you get this increasing sort of you know break now what happens from this moment on from Genesis chapter 4 onwards from the moment the, the the fall happens you get this domino effect right and god allows the dominoes to fall why does god allow the dominoes to and when i say dominoes falling i'm talking a lot of really terrible things begin to unfold things that god predicted would unfold when he confronted adam and eve in genesis chapter 3 right says you realize that what because of what you did all of these things are going to happen and we we covered some of those things in the last episode what you see is the dominoes start to fall and things start to descend back into chaos and of course that's depicted 
in the the waters of the flood, the you know waters and yeah. um, the ocean is seen as a kind of symbol of, of chaos. We saw that at the beginning, uh, Genesis one verse two, the watery chaos in the beginning, and so in a sense that the world returns to that uh, chaotic state, and that's kind of symbol of what's happened with uh, with. God's perfectly ordered world, it descends into this chaos. Now, God lets the dominoes fall. Why? Because we made the choice. And empowerment means that when we make the choice, the consequences flow from our choice because the choice that we make is an empowered choice. God put us in charge, and as it says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. God doesn't disempower once he's empowered. But essentially, uh, in making that choice, he then allows the dominoes to fall. Now, that, that doesn't mean that God doesn't uh, intervene. He does, but mm. he's largely committed himself to allowing the consequences of our actions to flow on. This is why in the standard in uh, you know scriptures like Exodus 34, um, you know, the story of Moses, when God says to Moses, I'm going to pass by you and so you can see my glory. Mm. And when God passes by, Moses, he declares his name, right? And his name is, you know, sh- showing love and goodness to thousands of generations. And, and then goes on to say, but, but visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And a lot of contemporary readers find that really vexing. He visits the sins of the fathers in Exodus 34. And it's a, it's a number of places, yeah. significant places where God says, this is who I am, right? Yeah. In describing who he is, it's the, the fundamental elements of what God wills, you know, and so he wills to show love. That's the primary thing mm-hmm. that, it, that it said, you know, he shows love to thousands of generations. He forgives iniquities and so forth. It says that, but mm-hmm. he visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to mm-hmm. the third and fourth generation. Now, the reason for this is because he has empowered the fathers to, to the extent mm. that their choices are going to have inevitable consequence on their children, on their, chi- on their mm. children, their children, and their children, right, mm. to the third and fourth generation. Now, we might say, oh, but that's just too much responsibility that my actions, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want that much responsibility that my actions should have consequence to the third and fourth generation, but... That's what being human is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, we we automatically sh- tend to shirk responsibility, but uh, you know that's part of our kind of corrupted human nature. And we we saw that in the last episode, Adam and Eve are shirking responsibility, blaming each other essentially, mm. uh, and not wanting to be ac- accountable. But it's a collective thing too. It's not just down the generations from your from your ancestors. It's collective mm. in our community that that we live. The choices that we make have yeah. impact on people that have far removed from us that we don't yeah. even know. So oh, that's as, a, right. yeah. as a community, because a lot of people will go, well, I'm feeling the effects of, you know, this chaos mm. from things that choices that I haven't even made that other people have yeah, made. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and, and that's a good point. That comes back to the interconnectedness, uh, because for better or worse, we're all interconnected. So the choice of one person, and, and I mean, I think we feel this very much in our modern world now. You know, a Russian leader can make stupid choices and decide to invade another country, and the whole world yeah. is suffering yeah. as a result. You know, that I think we're feeling that interconnectedness because of a political situation, but it was always there. You know, the moment that Adam and Eve made that choice, everyone else was was uh, affected. Um, and then 
uh, everything that everyone did affected everyone else. Now, again, we might say that is just too much responsibility that my <laughs> actions are going to affect so many other people more than I ever know. But see, that is, you know, uh, that is, again, the responsibility of being human. That's what comes with authority, you know. And, our, of course, and that was meant to that was created for good, right? Mm-hmm. We, it was meant to be that interconnectedness was meant to aid the flow of love and goodness mm-hmm. and, and blessing yeah. from one to another, right? But mm-hmm. now it's become a conduit for evil and not for good. Yeah. And, and how much we probably diminish the little th- decisions that we take is That's like right. pushing yeah. a domino yeah. over. That's right. You know, it does have an impact and an impact and an impact. And yeah. why God set up rules or frameworks for us to live in that yeah. that we may think are in our very limited tiny little understanding yeah we think uh it's not that bad or it mm. doesn't really matter you know i can mm. it's just some sort of rule in some you know it seems yeah. pretty pretty arbitrary and minimal but mm. it it is a framework yeah. that god has laid out yeah that's right yeah. that keeps us in the safety barriers yeah. mm. Yeah. It, it's interesting too in that passage um, I'm not sure if it's that one because there's a few times that that's mentioned about the third and fourth generation mm. it also says to those who love me to a thousand generations yeah that's right yeah 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 that's right and 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 that's the that's the dominant note but there is this sense that yeah, there's this totally. flow on now it's interesting there's a recent book that's come out uh, called it didn't start with you mm-hmm. and it's you know it sums up a lot of research now that that um, is being done on trauma and, and on the multi generational effects of trauma, and what what they what they've discovered um, is that one person's trauma or, or 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 something that happens in one person's life that the effects of that are actually felt with a lot of force to the third and fourth generation. It's interesting in this book. Uh, he even quotes, and, and I don't think he has a faith uh, background or anything like that, but he quotes the Bible mm-hmm. to the third and fourth generation because he's basically saying we're now discovering that actually, you know, trauma, things that happen to someone or even things that they do, uh, like significant things could, are actually have this these repercussions down to the third and fourth generation. And so, you know, I am the product, not just of my parental environment, but even things that happen to my great great-grandfather can have a direct effect uh, on me mm. and it's very interesting it's a very interesting book actually and but it just shows how complex actually we are like mm. how complex what happens to someone can actually affect i mean when you go to the third and fourth generation you really the, the ripples are really going out and talk about chaos mm-hmm. you, you get this this domino falling effect we we, we got dominoes falling all over the place mm. And it just shows how how complex we we actually are. And and I think reading that book made me recognise, gee, we we are more we, well, we are more connected than we thought, right? But we are also far more potentially messed up than we ever ever imagined that yeah. we actually were. If we can be affected that much, not only by the in the sense the interconnectedness of everyone. And I believe we shouldn't under uh, underrate. No, totally I think not. you know. I think yeah. we are. You know, we are affected that. You know, by that. I mean, uh, Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, talked about collective unconsciousness and uh, things like that. But you know, but I do think there is a sense uh, of everything that anyone does, in some sense, does affect everyone. Collective consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Collective consequences. Yeah. And and then you know, add that sort of stuff. The fact that 
you know, there's this multi-generational to the third and fourth generation and, and we're all experiencing that. Yeah. Man, we are tied up in a real, we are tied up in a knot, the like of yeah. which none of us can untie. Well, and if you look at the level of anxiety, particularly for young people today, which yeah. may not result in anything directly in their generation, may yeah. not necessarily, yeah. but just what's happening in the world, the collective impact on yeah. that for young people, particularly today, yeah. uh, mm. not just young people, but you know, it, it clearly it does. Mm. Yeah, that's right. One of the, you know, what books I've been reading, New Seeds of Contemplation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting it's things... It's one of my favourites. Yeah, it's such a, such a good book. By I Thomas mean, Merton. There's been a lot of time in that book really painting a picture of the depth of sin mm. within us. Yeah. And it's kind of opened my eyes to, 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 to what that actually looks like. Mm. Because even listening to you speak now, I feel like we're... There's, there's consequences of the actions that we take and so on, and it flows down through the generations and it impacts other people. But I think in reading this book, one of the interesting things is how much sin impacts my life without necessarily it being a choice or an action mm. that you would think necessarily is In the sin- obvious sense. Is, yeah. is sinful. Yeah. Yeah. So even in the good things that I do, mm. there's sin. Because he paints this picture of being a true self and a false self. And the false self is the thing that's built up, propped up by sin of greed and ego and ambition and seeking pleasure and running away from pain. And really, we all will do what we need to do to try to to reach that goal on that, you know, that axis Mm. that we've been talking about, trying to get to pleasure and away from pain. And so we'll trample over people, we'll put people down, we'll manipulate situations to to our advantage Mm. to try to get ourselves there. But so much of what we do that seems like is good is still tainted Mm. by these corrupt ambitions that we don't even know that we're operating in that kind of... Because there's so many layers of complexity. Yeah, and it's so steeped in this. And it's really made me think, you know, like if I was to go up and encourage someone and say, look, I see someone doing a really good job. You did a really good job of that today. Yeah. There's like a little switch in my brain and goes, well, why am I saying that to that person? Yeah. Is it because I really want to encourage them or do I win, want to win some favor yeah. with them? Do I want them to like me? Do they? Yeah. There's all these things and they're going and you start to realize, man, I'm so complicated that mm. I'm not even sure that the good that I do in my life is that, like for me, sin isn't necessarily just those big pieces. Yeah. Of things that I focus on where I, I know that I fail and disappoint God. Mm. But it's not something that I'm always thinking, constantly thinking, oh, man, I've messed up here, messed up there. When I look at it that way, then I kind of end up thinking, well, I'm not so bad because maybe my failures are just... Here and there kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And when I was actually thinking about this, and I was talking about this with someone the other day, and they were talking about feeling like they fail all the time before God. Mm. And one of the images that I kind of got in my head of, of what sin actually looks like is is like a beach mm. with, you know, you got all the grains of sand as far mm. as the eye can see. And sitting on top of the beach are these, you know, bigger rocks. And the only things that I can see are the bigger rocks. Yeah. And I look at the big rocks, which are the big sins. Yeah. And I think, oh, you know, look, <laughs> I've sinned there. Yeah. I've sinned there. I've sinned there. Man, I'm a bad person. Yeah. But actually, 
when you zoom in from God's perspective, all the little grains of sand on the mm. beach is sin as well. Like I'm absolutely dripping in sin in my nature. It permeates through everything. Yeah. And the ref- the repercussions of that mm. from all the little things yeah. that I'm doing as well, or as all setting up a kind of a... Um, yeah, and, and people are going to... And I, I just know people are going to struggle with that because it seems like an... It's such a bleak, yeah, such a big picture. Uh, picture. Now, what we need to remember, the yeah, backdrop to that bleak. is that we were essentially created good. It's important to remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, so we, we, we're not essentially bad. We're, we essentially are created good in our essence, right? But that goodness has been corrupted. That this is the And that corruption is, uh, is, is pervasive. And, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why Thomas Merton in that book, New Seeds of Contemplation, one of the reasons he focuses on that a lot is because that's our liberation lies in the recognition of that. Yep. And I know personally that confronting that has been one of the most liberating, empowering, life-giving things because my existence is in the grace of Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything good that comes from me is of the grace of God, like I'm floating in an ocean of grace. And it's not just about this bad thing or that bad thing or, or this. It, it is that I am pervasively in need of grace. And that doesn't mean that there's no, nothing good. Mm. There's a fundamental goodness, but that fundamental goodness has been corrupted. Well, even Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good. Yeah, that's right. Except the Father. Yeah. He's the only so, one. So good. we can, you know, I mean, it's easy to not see this. It's a little bit like imagine someone falling without seeing but being blind and not where, where you don't really, you get so used to the the feeling that it becomes sort of normalized mm-hmm. because you don't see the ground coming closer to you or, you know, there's no sense of, you know, like if you're out in space or something mm-hmm. and, and you you... You're actually yeah. kind of falling, but you don't. And, and I think we're, we're in a situation analogous like that because we've got there's something happening that we don't really perceive. But actually, from God's standard and from God's perspective, it is really serious. This is one of the things that comes up when we think about abnormal psychology, like abnormal psychology diagnoses certain um, abnormal conditions, and the you know, it's, take something like dissociative identity disorder, where where people live through sort of different alter egos. And mm. now, by what standard do we do we judge the line of normal and abnormal? You know, I mean, one might say, well, it's it's by the standard of being able to function in our society, function adequately in our society, in a way that you might be happy with. Uh, that's a pretty arbitrary kind of value because what if the whole of society is also falling? You know, what yeah. if we're all falling together? Yeah. Then judging yeah. your yeah. normality by other people yeah. isn't really the right. You know, because in some sense we're we're all doing that. We're all we've all we're all spinning these alter egos mm-hmm. that we live through. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's a degree that that happens that beca- that interrupts when we do that a whole lot more than yeah. others that interrupts our ability to function socially. Well, and, and I'm sorry, I'm not underplaying the seriousness of those mm. disorders. It's interesting that they're referred to as disorders. Mm. Um, you know, again, the question is, and this is a question that the, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, uh, you know, brought up in relation to what was then called madness, you know, mm. in the 60s. Like, you know, his, his critique was, well, who gets to say who's mad? Yeah. Who gets to say that? And for him, it was a social construct. Now, I don't agree with, it, um, mm-hmm. of course, with everything that he says, but I think that point of critique was a valid one. But it's it's because everything's yeah, it's all relative to the 
to the world around you. And I think yeah. resetting our idea of what is sin and what is wrong with us yeah. shouldn't be based on what the relative standard that the that, yeah, the, that's world, right. that the world gives us. And yeah. I think that's the, the power in this whole idea of going, <laughs> we actually need to go a lot deeper than just going, oh, well, I messed up, I messed up, I messed up. With these things, the depth of the problem within us and the depth of the sin within in us, you're never going to get that validation from the from comparing yourself yeah. to others in the world. It's actually got to look at it from God's perspective, which mm. really paints a pretty bleak picture of our condition. And the interesting thing with the the New Seeds of Contemplation book is it talks. There's a lot of hope. You say it's a pretty bleak kind of picture in terms of just how sinful we we all are, mm. even the best of us. Just you know, it's far deeper than what you're even conscious of. But the point that he's trying to make there is that that's not the identity that God gave us. It's no. not actually our true no, that's identity. Right. Yeah. Our true identity is what God wants to redeem, well, restore us, that's bring, right. bring yeah. us back into. Yeah. So there's actually... So the old a, thing needs to die, and this is the whole point, Yes. is that pervasiveness means that we've got to let that die. God wants to put that to death to actually reconcile us with our true yeah, selves. Yeah, and in this book, you know, Thomas Merton goes through these different scenarios of, of people, you know, showing how that kind of manifests and the difficulty it is in, in actually letting go of, of those things, which is going to be incredibly difficult to, yeah. to, to let go of them because they're so core to who we are or what we've built ourselves to mm. be. This idea of false self is yeah. like we've erected this identity and a mask or not even well it's kind of like a mask it's like kind of a a front to the world and even to ourselves that allows us to kind of exist mm. within ourselves within the world that's to attain something that we've got in our mind of what it is that we want to be and it's propped up by ego and in, in careers and all those sorts of things well also by normal you know, as Matt said before, yeah. we look around and what's made things acceptable is the fact that they're normal. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, and and it's and, and it's interesting this topic of the false self and and the, you know this sort of false identity that we that we spin. It's interesting how in in civilization, in inverted commas, in its supposedly highest forms, right? Those, those who would advocate for civilization and and you know how much false identity content there is. In, in that, you know, uh, we get to choose who we are and what we become and, and our identity is, you know, often relates to, you know, status symbols and I've lately been reading uh, a number of, you know, classic novels from the 19th century because uh, I find that period so fascinating. And, and particularly one of the things that I find interesting, particularly in English culture at the, in that Victorian era, is the obsession with rank and status and title and it's like this game that everyone's playing mm -hmm. but it's real for them you know mm -hmm. and and they you know we need to be friends with them because that reflects well on us we can't be friends with them because that'll inter interrupt our friends with that person of higher rank because mm -hmm. that might draw them down by association and oh man it's so so complicated yeah. it's this spinning of of a sort of false reality with false identities, yeah. a kind of false universe. It's just the it's craziest thing. And yet this is 
supposedly, you know, the English nobility, you know, was supposedly sort of the highest expression mm-hmm. of of civilization. E- you know, even, you know, I enjoy watching the TV series The Crown. You know, one yeah. of the things that they, the, the, you know, they have the the royal saying, and and this is something that I think has been uh, and that has been stated in terms uh, about the the royal family is that they kind of stand for English civilization. It's that, that they kind of stand for, symbolize the height of sort of, you know, that British civilization. And yet it's a civilization that's so problematic at so many levels uh, because it's been built up on these really shaky foundations. Now, there's lots of Christian influence, and this is the interesting thing. It's complex because there's lots of good stuff there, and we can talk about progress because there are lots of good streams flowing into that. A lot of that can actually empower also what's bad as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, we, mm. we probably need to unpack that mm. uh, a, a little bit and go back to the beginning. But it's interesting, uh, you know, in terms of the false self, yeah. how readily we do that as human beings. Well, you, you, you mentioned before as well about we spin things. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me there that those spinning, the spinning itself, well, it's <clears throat> the motives and the agendas that sort of sits behind it. If you were to look at it, you probably weren't doing things that were overtly sinful. You'd be making choices that in themselves, as they stand on their own, there was nothing sinful particularly mm. about them. It's the fact that it's all being spun together mm. to create something. Yeah. Because it's actually all being sown out of dysfunction and sin and well it's it's actually an endeavor it's not just ne- it's not out of a negative it's a it's mm. an endeavor of human beings mm-hmm. to weave our own identity yeah. and of course if if our identity isn't derived from our relationship with god then it has to be derived from our relationship with other mm-hmm. people and and when i say that i mean by comparing ourselves to other people yeah so for me to feel good about myself i've got to be better than you and so you not only get this in you know this obsession with rank, you know, in sort of European and English society. It's actually, you know, pretty pervasively in European society, but even been interested in lately in Hinduism and, and the sort of thought world of Hinduism. And it's very much there as well. And, you know, the caste society uh, that grew out of yeah. uh, that Hindu worldview where one person's identity is created by comparison with the other person yeah. that's in the lower caste or the higher caste or, or, or so, mm. so forth. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of dysfunction, I think that's what we need to become more aware of where we've trivialized a dysfunction in terms of yesterday I said something that wasn't completely truthful, for example, mm. and that's it. We've created these yeah. very discreet rocks, yeah, that's right. rocks <laughs> on the beach. And that's that's the least of your work. Yeah, it's yeah. actually, ironically, it's minimizing our it, sin. It's yes. minimizing it. And for a lot of Christians too, they, they struggle with those big problems as if, oh, I've disappointed God, you know, two days ago, I, you know, and it, there'd, be, there'd be something, I, I just keep disappointing God mm. and I'm not worthy. And there's that sort of sense of it. And you go, well, actually, that's the least of your worries, you know, mm. like that's the... It's trying to the, – the, the predicament that we're actually in is, as, as humans, the level of dysfunction, the level of sin, it's just it's, – it's at a, such a deeper level than what we can ever yeah. be. Yeah. Which well, it's, hopeless without, it's hopeless yeah. without the sex. It's hopeless and it makes us powerless. And yeah, those exactly actually right. – that getting to that point, mm. realizing that it's hopeless and that you are completely powerless – 
that will be where redemption begins, Mm. right there. I mean, this is, you know, it's the recognition of that. Because if, to the extent you think, well, I should just try harder or try and be better or... No, no, you, you, you can't any more than you, you could stop yourself falling out of the sky, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and don't look at other people and say, well, I'm better than that person. Yeah, but that person's falling out of the sky, too. You might be falling, you know, slightly faster, but you're all so don't be comparing yourselves to other people. It's the it's the fund. It's yeah. that pervasive nature of the problem that brings us to that point of helplessness and hopelessness in ourselves Mm. that actually is the beginning of our redemption. Yeah. And so this is where we then talk about then going to true self. It's a really interesting kind of way to understand the journey of salvation because it's, it's not like all of a sudden you become your true self or it's not even like we are our true self but just a little bit corrupt and we need to fix ourselves up around the edges. Thomas Merton's making the point that we don't even know who we are. We're so used to the false yeah. self that we've created. We actually have to have God work within us and reveal to us yeah. who we really are and then allow him to pretty much reverse everything that we're used to living with, the whole kind of thing yeah. that drives us forward. All of those things, God needs to reverse them. We have to be able to let go of them. And then the the journey of salvation is gradually chipping away, opening up the cracks to let the light of, of true self actually yeah. start to slowly emerge. And we're always going to be battling false self. But hopefully over time, we start to morph into the true identity that God yeah. gave which us. In, which in a sense, we, we, we have that. Because our true identity, and this is this is a topic for a future episode, actually, mm. is human identity. That's the, this is a big one, and we'll talk more about that. Our identity essentially is in our relationship with God. Yeah, uh, you know, our identity. We need to understand identity as a relational relational thing, and it's primarily in our relationship with God. Now, Jesus has reconciled us with God, so it's there. Our identity is there, but it's the growth in that relationship is that progressive discovery, yeah. and it's so it's like putting that old identity to death and allowing God to deconstruct that and actually build up out of our relationship with God our sense of new identity. Yeah. As I said, we have that, but we still need to realize that uh, yeah. progressively. And, and we don't necessarily, and this is where it came from, from the contemplative aspect of yeah. it, is that it's in there, but we actually are unaware of it, really. It's yeah. it's it's so deeply hidden from yeah. us. It needs to be something that's, that's revealed. Yeah. And, and and so on. But the, the interesting thing is, too, he actually paints, uh, there's a huge, well, there's a huge amount of hope in that, in that mm. who I am is actually not really who I am. God has a, yeah. an identity for me, something else to step into. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of uh, that incredible, you know, hope and optimism with that. But there's also like a kind of warning, too, that it, there's something that he mentioned that really kind of struck me was the idea that if we continue living and holding on to the false self and rejecting becoming our true Mm. identity imagine when we die all the things that built our false self Mm. are all the things of the world yeah it's it was our jobs and our our relationships and aspirations and our wealth and all of a sudden once we've died Mm. and now we're standing there and all of that's gone is the moment we realize our life was one big mistake. The emperor has no clothes. Yeah. All of a yeah, sudden, that right, identity yeah. I have was completely false, a complete mistake, and I've failed to 
yeah. become the identity that God gave us, which now looking at it without with the false identity mm. now no longer being propped up, the true identity is what I was looking for. Yeah, that's right. And desired yeah. all along. Yeah. Just to say something about that, because we've, we've mentioned that book uh, a lot. So Thomas Merton is, was a Catholic Trappist, uh, yep, a Catholic Trappist monk. Mm. Uh, comes from a, you know, he's coming from a, a Catholic background. Actually, I, I find myself resonating. Obviously, there's there's slight uh, difference. There are there are obviously things in Catholicism that I would disagree yeah. with. I actually find his explanation, his explanations. Uh, I, you know, I find myself, I, I find his explanations of even some of those Catholic elements really really interesting. I think mm-hmm. he's, um, in some ways, he's quite. He feels like a sort of a sort of a Protestant Catholic, if I can, even fairly evangelical in some sort of senses. So, so keep that in mind. So you, but I, that book, New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton, was, uh, you know, I think you're, you know, discovering this too. It's, it's seriously, it's one of the richest reads. Mm. That, you know, I think, uh, this is yeah. a guy. To me, this is. It's like when I read this book, I thought this guy, this is a guy that stood on the mountain. I mean, yeah. he is. You know, I mean, this guy's been there. He's not talking about some place that he hasn't been. Uh, I just found it profound. It's yeah. pretty deep stuff. It's not an easy read no. necessarily, no. Um, but it's really good. I know when I read it, I was it did challenge my challenge me to to read it because it's not necessarily from my own theological persuasion. It's good though I, that that can be useful though yeah. because it it pushes against. You know, because one of the things, uh, actually, and we shouldn't probably. No, we we're going to get off. Of, <laughs> but but he does push against the edges of things. I thought, oh, yeah. actually, that's a really good critique of something that I, as an evangelical, have taken for, for granted, granted, right? Yeah. But yeah. because he's on the, he's in a different tradition. I think seeing that yeah. from his point of view is really, uh, really valuable. But I think the point I was going to make there is there is a sense of it's not coming at it because he's a Catholic. He's coming at it because he's had an. Ex- he 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 has spent time, time contemplating. He's very Christ-centered yeah. and has experienced. Yeah, that's right. Something yeah. I haven't is accessed something that explains the core of yeah. the core of Christ of gen that kind of that kind of general common understanding yeah. of Christianity, but just built so much richness into a whole lot of ideas yeah. that I've taken for granted. Not to mention his mastery of the English English language. Yeah. I mean, he's a sublimely yeah. beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. Let's I just want to go back. Uh, to the consequences of the fall and the domino effect. So essentially what you get there is a sort of a social, you, you get the creation of, I guess, society, the, the, the roots of, of society, civilization, let's call it, as we now know it. So you get this breakdown. So what we've highlighted is the breakdown between us and God, because that's where we got our identity from. You know, our very being grows out of God, but we imagine, you know, we became these sort of autonomous, independent units. And so that really messes up our identity, our sense of identity. You know, we construct our identity artificially. Uh, you know, we we relate to each other as means to ends, in a sense. So I relate, you know, um, it's not only the competitive element in that, but people are using other people as means to an end. It's interesting that when it talks about Cain after he kill, kills Abel, you know, he's driven off into the east, and you know, talks about him building the first city. And I mentioned this at the end of the last uh, episode. Cities in the ancient world weren't like nice, you know, living environments. They were forts. Mm. You know, they, they were constructed by one group of people to protect themselves against the other group of people. Mm. So implicit there is this idea that you've got. 
this tribalism uh, amongst human beings where they're building cities now these fortified cities to protect uh, them against each other and uh, and i also mentioned that's where uh, historians like um you know jared diamond and, and others who go right back to that transition from the paleolithic period to the neolithic period that recognize a sort of monumental disaster they point back to that period and they say there was a a monumental disaster um that happened because previously, to a large extent, as they describe it, you know, they see human beings living in harmony, relative harmony with their environment. But then suddenly you get this, well, not suddenly, but you get the emergence of tribalism, which leads to people gathering into, into groups and vying for limited resources and, uh, you know, forming cities, domesticating crops, which, uh, you know, um, severely impacts their malnutrition, you know, and uh, they're much more vulnerable to drought and famine. Therefore, they're also vulnerable to disease because they're cooping up animals in close confines and living with, you know, and so you get a lot of a lot of problems with that. So they, you know, a lot of these problems, including the backbreaking work, you know, backbreaking work involved in, you know, in farming as opposed to the sort of thing that human beings were doing before. So you know, it's interesting in you know that these historians and there's there's a whole number there's a, another book that talks a bit about this and that I've mentioned before is uh, Yuval Noah Harari's he's an atheist mm-hmm. intellectual uh, but his book uh, Sapiens does a similar mm-hmm. thing you know he talks about this transition uh, and and it's just and he, you know he's summing up a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of scholarship that's come before him as well but it's interesting that they locate they locate as kind of fall, and the uh, American uh, philosopher John Zazan, who is a what's called an anarcho-primitivist, you know, which is basically a school of thought that that problematizes civilization at the most fundamental level, that says that f- civilization is fundamentally corrupt because it has these corrupt roots. You know, we used to live in harmony with our environment, but the turn from the Paleolithic period to the Neolithic period really begins all of our problems. So they locate this this fall in this you know at, the, at this particular point. Now the interesting thing with John Zazan is that he refers to the Bible and this the narrative of the fall as preserving right. the memory of that. Yeah, right. Okay. Now you, you know of, of course the question is 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 the historian's description of it or is the biblical description of it the most accurate? And of yep. course, we would say the biblical yep. description is the most accurate, but it's interesting that these historians are, you know, sort of now universally recognising that there was something essentially problematic that happened there. Yeah. There's a pattern that's yeah. the, that they can see. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. the implications of this are, are important. And, and to this extent, I agree uh, with with John Zazan, uh, who actually, I got in touch with him actually, and because uh, he's still alive and, and uh, you know, I said to him there's a lot of resonance with the you know with some of the things that you're mm-hmm. saying and actually you know the biblical accounts and some and, and elements of theology and anyway I shared some of that and he actually wrote back and said um he said yeah look, i'm actually starting to realize some of this and he said to me i've been reading thomas merton <laughs> he said he said uh, oh, he okay. said thomas merton lately has been my spiritual journeyman right so I'm thinking, wow, here's a guy that's gone from sort of atheistic, sort of anti, and you sort of get sense that in some of his earlier books, to actually realising, uh, I, I hope, realising something uh, there. Anyway, so, but yeah, so he, one one of the interesting things that he does is that he, you know, he talks about 
civilization, the thing that that we have celebrated in our culture without much sort of critical reflection, well, civilization is better, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, we've... What he's doing is essentially questioning what he and a number of other people uh, have been doing is questioning. Well, is that actually better? And and it goes back to the sort of colonialist mentality of you know we had civilization, we felt like we need to come and bring this and sort of force this civilization structure on these primitive peoples that were uh, that we had this fairly patronizing attitude and and. Um, we felt were sort of degraded and live these horrible, brutish sort of lives, uh, you know, out in the uh, out in the jungles and the bush and the whatever. When actually they're saying, actually, these people were <laughs> living a lot more in harmony with with their environment, and, mm. and it's not, you know, and from a theological point of view, we would not want to idealize that. Uh, and certainly, the idealization of that primitive state, you know, began begins with you know philosophers like Rousseau in the you know late. 18th century and and the 19th century it was sort of fashionable you know this idea of the noble savage you know that they but that's the, the language that they used of course right. where they they began to question these values of civilization there was this sort of movement there and and it was you know seen these primitive states were seen as almost this kind of utopias little utopias and and I think that was overstated but the beginnings of the criticism of that enlightenment um, that enlightenment commitment to creating a civilization that masters nature and that that is uh, can solve its all, mm-hmm. you know the idea of humanistic progress and and of course one of the big problems that even missionaries made at the time is that they confused civilization with Christianity uh, that that a Christian uh, you know Christian world is a civilized world now now they they weren't they weren't completely wrong in mm. the sense that Christianity actually enabled and empowered the building of our Western civilization, yeah. you know, with science. And well, this, at, this is a... At a much deeper level than most people yeah, that's realize. Right. Yes. Not, I mean, I was listening to Tom Holland. Yeah. Who's yeah, that's a right. lecture on... Because he, he's done a lot of research yeah. and stuff. So his book, Dominion, that. makes this very case. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and just goes through how entrenched that idea has been of the impact that you know, Christian thinking has kind of infused itself into so many layers of yeah, society right. that it has built a a functioning generally better is what you're saying is it's not necessarily but it's like but it's a it's a it's a it's a what what I guess we would if you're a, a an atheist making the case against religion and religion mm. and Christianity being the problem then yeah. actually the things that you think are good are because of yeah. the thinking or Christian yeah. thinking actually is is planted in all of that which has made it which has made it better yeah and but that also gets flipped by cr- critics of the sort of colonialist way of thinking because they say that uh you know they sort of blame that well all these christian ideas sort of got in there and and it's just so human to take something good and to twist it. Yeah, you know, like there's there's no yeah, you know there's no doubt. And this is the yeah. argument that Tom Holland made is that you know so many of the of the the sort of powers that we possess as a civilization, you know, like even science and so forth. It it actually a lot of our civilization, you know, even our ability to construct stable you know economic environments and things like that, uh, you know, it does go back to sort of Christian. Uh, there are Christian roots in that, you know, the Protestant work ethic that uh, has been spoken a lot about, and so forth. So, so yes, there 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 are good elements in that, but it's still, in a sense, and and a good way of illustrating this uh, is that 
it's like building a high rise. We've been we've been civilizations like a high rise that we've been adding to, right? We've been and and we've been getting better at building it, right? And mm-hmm. we've even used Christian principles to build, you know, society. Now I know that's being stripped away in, in now in our current environment. But it's a high rise that's built on really, really shaky foundations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's built on um, you know, going back to Cain, building the first city. And that's, you know, that, that's a, you're referring to the beginnings of sort of civilization. But civilization was built on sort of human autonomy and independence. And of course, the Tower of Babel uh, is, is the culmination yep. of, of that, really. And so that sort of illustrates the kind of foundations, these shaky foundations that civilization mm-hmm. has been built on. And you know, essentially, the uh, the argument of the these anarcho primitivist uh, thinkers is that you know the whole thing is fundamentally it's just not going to work because it's it's like so they're questioning the idea, uh, idea you know the idea of for example um, the philosopher Steve Pinker who uh, wrote a book called Enlightenment Now which is a a sort of advocating uh, this idea of humanistic progress. We're going to solve all our own problems. Things are getting better. Look how much things have gotten better uh, in the world, you know, due to sort of humanistic progress. And and yes, it, it is true. He can point to a lot of things that have mm-hmm. genuinely gotten better. Um, and, you know, to go back to my illustration, and and we would say, and, you know, I would certainly argue, and, and Tom Holland, also Rodney Stark, the historian, would argue that, Christianity has empowered a lot of those, you know, the getting better mm-hmm. part. But still, we're getting better at building new stories on a building mm-hmm. that is fundamentally problematic. And yeah. and this is where this is where these a lot of these scholars and this is connected a bit to uh, pessimism, a more pessimistic view that is taken, you know, in view of sort of envir- the, the destruction of the environment and so forth. Because they're saying this just isn't sustainable. This whole way of living that we have constructed as human beings mm. is is completely unsustainable and we've become like a kind of kind of cancer on the earth mm. destroying you know we're destroying our own body in a sense right. uh, destroying our own host and this there's, there's an element of validity to that so it really underscores the fact that the bible points to that this whole thing the world system it's all going to crumble and fall one day. That's that's where the story ends. I mean there's victory at the end for the kingdom of god but the kingdom of this world this whole world system, as we read Revelation, it's very clear that that all crumbles and falls, but the kingdom of God remains. And it's really important that we're living in the present, not putting our hope in this humanistic progress, <laughs> not playing the game, right? Because it's like, you know, this world is this game of identities and, and who's better than who and who's got the more status and, and you know, who's got the most toys. And this worldly game is completely unsustainable. Mm-hmm. That, is destroyed, that game has destroyed the world and is destroying the world. And yes, we have more resources and we're better at playing that game and more people have an equal share in the game. Uh, and so you can point to humanistic progress in that sense. But it's the wrong game. <laughs> like It's the wrong game. Yeah. It's, it's, we shouldn't even be playing that game. And we're going to destroy ourselves. Who's and the world de- yeah. in that game. and who decides what's better? Yeah, exactly. Who decides what's better? Because I think there are people, you know, if you if you travel overseas to to less, you know, to to 
third world countries, for instance, and you see the sense of community. And I hear more often people coming back from Pacific Island holidays where they're not in the tourist spots coming, man, those guys have got something I wish we had. Yeah. You know, we think we're, we're better, yeah. but in fact, what is better? You know, yeah, that's uh, right. But there is a danger in this, so that we frame the human predicament as better, as in better society or betterment mm, of society. Yeah. We're just to bring it back yeah, into absolutely to anchor it back the real human predicament is all of those things are actually painting a picture of the symptoms of of a symptom mm. of a problem that doesn't really matter what we do whatever we build we make a mess of it and the yeah. reason we make a mess of it is because deep inside us is that's right is deep thin that goes well beyond anything we can yeah. even comprehend yeah. and the real predicament is as a result of that, the separation yeah. from God. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, that's right. And where that's going to end up, there, there is, a, you know, where we sort of started off today as well, you know, you're talking about the visiting the sins of the yeah. different generations and so on. One of the things that would be interesting to sort of unpack, that, that kind of almost builds an imagery of God just inflicting things yeah. on us. Which I don't think. No, no, that's, that's a, not a what it is as well. He's about, and I yeah. think there's another angle we he's can allowing come at a this, consequence, that's which right. is to understand why why does yeah. God allow those consequences yeah. and the weight of sin to bear down on us? Yeah, so. that's right. One of the key takeaways, you know, I think here is that in the light of what we said about ourselves and our and and the world in which we live, and this is just something that is trumpeted throughout the New Testament, is that we should never hope in our own abilities to fix our own problems. We cannot save ourselves. This is why we need Jesus so much, because our identity lies in God and Jesus reconnects us uh, with God. He does that once and for all in, in that act of forgiveness, And but it's this progressive reconnection in the sense that we grow in our relationship with God. That's where our identity is. But we also should not put our hope in this world system. And we can so easily do that. Oh, things are going to be all right. Things are going to get better. Things that, you know, we're meant to be really connecting ourselves and putting our hope in God's kingdom, what God is doing, and not in the things of this world. And I think that can actually be a liberating thing, because in our helplessness, in our need, that's when we really connect with what Jesus wants to do for us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thrive Perspectives. Our hope is that these discussions will challenge you to look at life from a new perspective. You'll find all our resources at the Thrive Today website, thrivetoday.tv. If there's a topic that you'd like us to discuss, please email us. Our email is contact at thrivetoday.tv. Until next time, our prayer is that you will thrive.